Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the Curzon Film Podcast on the ground from the Cannes Film Festival quickly separating for you the palm doors from the palm snores. I'm Jake Cunningham and this is our second dispatch from the 72nd edition of the festival. After discussing the highlights from the first week, along with some shining short-form favourites in part one of our Cannes episodes, I've returned with more generous guests, including Curzon's Director of Programme, to tell you what to be excited about that's coming out of the Crozette. But first, a dance film from Georgia that's already got a major Twitter standum. So I'm now here with Diana Murray, who's been covering the festival for The Skinny and Little White Lies, and is, of course, a past and future guest of this podcast, who will be appearing very soon on our Booksmart episode. Yes. Uh, which has definitely not already been recorded. <laughs> Anna, you have been at the festival now for, I think, 10 days. Your eyes are square. Somehow even your glasses are as well. Yeah. Um, but could you just give us a quick highlight from the festival? I think one of my favorites was uh, one of the films in Director's Fortnight, which is And Then We Danced, which kind of like flew under the radar, but has stayed with me even though I saw it on like the third day. Um, it's a love story between these two boys who are in this dancing ensemble in Georgia. There are shades of Call Me By Your Name and God's Own Country and films like that. But I think it's quite singular because, because it's taking place in Georgia. Um, it's quite a conservative country. So a lot of the like romance and flirtation is kind of in the physicality of the characters and it's kind of like a corporeal love like because they're dancing kind of the flirtation is like through movement and their bodies which is really interesting and also it ties into the country of Georgia and kind of the state that the country is in in terms of uh, LGBT rights. I spoke to the director Levin Aiken. He was talking about how the country of Georgia, they refused to give him funding for the film um, because of its themes and all that. Um, but now it's become really successful at Cannes that they're kind of finding it difficult to reconcile like their success uh, with their connection to this film, but also, you know, that they're kind of vehemently against it. There's this really interesting background to it, and also it's just a really beautiful movie in general there's just this really like like soft softness to it and there is like 
this kind of tie to masculinity. There's like a line in the movie about how softness isn't allowed in Georgian dance because it's an inherently masculine kind of dance. And then to be vulnerable is to be soft, is to not be masculine. So it has a lot of interesting ideas yeah. in it, yeah. And beyond the holy duo of God's Own Country and Call Me By Our Name, uh, is there any other films that people might know of that you think this would be a, a nice pairing to? Levin Aiken, the director, he did say like he wasn't directly inspired by any films, but that one he did watch was Itu Mama Tambien, which it's not directly obvious what the connection is, but I think there's this like unspoken connection between people. You can kind of see it there, yeah. So I'm here with the director of program for Curzon, Damo Spanley, who's been here for the second week of the festival. And I suppose as a programmer going into Cannes, you have the similar expectation, excitement and nerves as you will for the Champions League final next week. Uh, I'm not sure about that. I might <laughs> completely lose my mind <laughs> next weekend um, uh, um, uh, yeah, in Madrid. Um, I, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm slightly calmer at the moment yeah. uh, than I expect I'll be then. Um, yeah, I mean, w one of the things about coming about to second week uh, was that I was able to sort of mine uh, the re sort of re feedback from the team right. from week one. Uh, it's also a lot quieter in second week, and we're actually uh, recording this on Saturday, and today uh, is the last day of screenings, and there's lots of catch-up screenings from films from the competition. So it's also an opportunity if you come a little bit later uh, to ca you know, catch up on films that uh, you know you might not be able to get into because of queuing mm. for the rest of the festival. Um, yeah. It has the drawbacks, though. But, I mean, one is that you kind of know what you want to see, and when you don't get into those films and you've read the reviews because they're coming out on the day of the premiere screenings, it can be extremely disappointing, oh, I, I as, I know, as I know yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yesterday I got to the actual very, very front of the queue for The Lighthouse, which has probably been the most buzzed film about at the festival. And the security man, he looked me in the eye and he pulled the rope over my chest and said, we're at capacity. Yeah, that hurts, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's members of our team who've queued up three times to get into that film and failed in each occasion. Yeah. So, yeah, no one, I don't think anyone with uh, in our team has actually managed to see it. And of course, I mean, it's been well publicized in the trade press that the Tarantino uh, was also a um, hot and impossible ticket. Mm. We had, I think we had eight or nine passes all signed up for the Tarantino screenings. There were only two of them and not a single person from our company managed to get a ticket. <laughs> and on the day of the actual premiere, there was some ticketing error and it was publicised in all of the trades that something like two or 300 people, even though they had tickets, still couldn't get in. So, I mean, I'd love to know. I mean, I had this theory that perhaps there wasn't even a screening. And when DiCaprio and Tarantino kind of get into the screening, do the red carpet, they just sit down and drink a little bit of rosé. <laughs> and um, but, uh, but, uh, but the reviews have been really great, actually, and uh, it just makes it even worse. Yeah, well, perhaps even more heartbreaking is um, Ayana, who listeners would have just heard on this very episode, uh, queued once for the film for three and a half hours, didn't get in, queued the next day for three hours, did get in, watched it, and then just thought it was okay. 
Oh, God, that's <laughs> horrible. Yeah, those can stories you hear every year. I mean, I, I mean, I know somebody who did get into the lighthouse yesterday, but they queued for four hours while the rest of us were probably picking up a couple of other films. So yep. it's uh, it can be difficult. Uh, you know, Cannes is a, a bit of a bloodbath in that in that area. Yeah. But um, let's get know. on to some stuff that we Absolutely. have seen. Uh, so I gave you the option to pick out a, f a few highlights. Uh, and so we're going to have a brief chat about uh, Parasite, Maradona, and Sorry We Missed You. Uh, Parasite is probably my highlight of the whole festival. Why have you picked that one out? Oh, it's just so good. so good. It's such a great film. And um, I mean, for anybody who, I mean, if anyone saw Shoplifters, which won the Palme d'Or last year, uh, it has some of those elements. In fact, uh, I mean, we should talk a little bit generally about it. I mean, it's a, a film from South Korean director Bong Joon-ho, who was here with Okja, which I think was last year. A couple of years ago now. Was it two years yeah. ago? Because that was uh, a Netflix one. That's so. right. That's right. And he's known for uh, films like The Host and uh, Snowpiercer, Snowpiercer, which people would have only just seen. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That was the film that got tied up uh, with the Weinsteins and didn't get a UK, uh, proper UK release, um, even though it's terrific as well. And yeah, he's made um, uh, he's made a film that sort of sort of combines I think shoplifters. It's about a group of. Uh, it's, about, it's about a family of hard, hard up, uh, I'd say entrepreneurs who see an opportunity when they're introduced to a rich family to um, take up positions within the household. Um, uh, the family do not realise that they're all related. Mm. They're just all rec being recommended. Yeah, so this so is it's like the driver, the maid, the music teacher, correct. the artist. <clears throat> yeah. And uh, so once they are, uh, and then once they're installed in uh, in this house, um, things start to go wrong. I mean, I thought I thought that it re it recalled Jordan Peele's Us mm. as a sort of home invasion, both as a home invasion movie, but also uh, in a different sense, of course, uh, in, ta in the fact that it's strategic. It's not um, it's not a horror as such, but also um, in the sense of the haves and have nots, you know, in the sort of working class. Uh, people invading. Um, yeah, middle, you've middle got those home. that not so subtle high rise representation of class. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's all shot. It, well, it's not all shot, but most of it is shot in this amazing um, modernist house, which uh, is, is very much an important character of the, in the mm. movie. And uh, yeah, it's really dark. It's incredibly funny. The screening, I, the screening I was in, it went down um, brilliantly well. And uh, and it's now being talked about. I think uh, it was topping the screen highest, yeah, grid, highest scores on the screen grid. Uh, and it's looking like it could be uh, yeah, free. Everyone's talking about it in terms um, with the Siama uh, portrait of a lady on fire. Those are the two movies that are being talked about as most likely uh, for the Palm Door. So fingers crossed because it definitely deserves deserves it. Um, so that's been my film of the. Yeah, film of the festival, um, and then Maradona, which will be in UK cinemas fairly soon as well. That's the new one from Asif Kapadia. Yes, it's in it's in UK cinemas on from the fourteenth of June, and he, uh, I mean, he makes no uh, secret of the fact that he's a huge football fan, and we both support the same team. And uh, he's made a documentary about Diego Maradona, so the third, you might say, in this theory in this series of. Um, of documentaries he's made about troubled celebrities, mm -hmm. um, Senna and uh, Amy, of course. 
Uh, I loved it. I mean, as a football fan, you you, you can't not enjoy, enjoy this movie. And I think it's quite an interesting film because he's uh, taking on the sort of UK public perception of Maradona as mm. this, you know, the hand of God. What he does is really uh, is really clever. He, he the film starts with this unbelievable sort of montage sequence that goes on for 15 minutes with this uh, fantastic music that that sort of brings you up to date to 1984 in Maradona's career but then he actually focuses in the sort of five or six seasons where Maradona was at Napoli so the film isn't really just about Maradona I mean it does put across this idea that there was sort of two Maradonas there's Diego who is the you know the family man very sensitive a uh, very impressionable uh, young man. And then Maradona, who was the icon, you know, how the Italians saw him. So it, it draws on a lot of sort of Italian socio-political uh, history and, you know, how he was found himself becoming this sort of commodity in this kind of crazy country and the mafia came into his life. And so it's it's got all of this stuff in there that I wasn't really aware of. It gives a, bit, a little bit of background and uh, explanation as to how, he, you know, wh- why he behaved the way he did on the pitch. Um, but it's just watching Capagia just handle archive material that I just mm. love, you know. And, the, and there's there's 500 hours apparently of of never seen before footage that he sifted through to be able to create and build the movie. And uh, so if you you know the, what will be interesting on release is to see. I mean, I would say if you're not a football fan, you have to go and see it. You know, it's because it's not just about football, although there's amazing footage in there yeah. from well that, um, was, that was the feat with Senna as well like so many people who have no interest in car racing yeah were floored by that as well yeah absolutely and I think this film does the, does the same thing I mean it's uh, it's the it's the, the only one of the three where where um, its protagonist is uh, is still alive uh, of course it's different in, in that sense but I think that it's just uh, he's just so good at creating these movies and yeah. uh, you know it's it's got to be seen. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the last one that we picked out is a from a director who's very much a Cannes favourite, uh, Ken Loach's Sorry We Missed You. Yes. Which I have to say, I really, I mean, I, I really enjoyed this. It was, it really moved me. I had a little cry in the screen. It's very, it's very similar in many ways to I, Daniel Blake. Um, I mean, I thought that I, Daniel Blake had a, you know, had a, lacked a little bit of focus in terms of, I mean, obviously it was uh, a terrific movie at the right time and um, and it's great that it did so well, you know, over three million pounds at the UK box office. For me, Sorry We Missed You is a much better film. It feels like Paul Laverty has really meticulously researched this one and it feels much more kind of authentic. It's set, still set in Newcastle. It's about a family who are struggling to to stay alive to to you know to, they're in debt they're uh, struggling to meet their payments the man is a he's a is a ex-builder uh the father who gets a job with a local courier firm the film is really attacking sort of zero hours britain both the mother and the father by, by the way these guys are played by chris hitchin and debbie honeywood who are just amazing you know it's just the performances from these two are incredible um and i'd love to see honeywood actually pick up something here in Cannes right. because it's certainly been the most um, heartbreaking performance i've seen this uh, festival uh she's a carer who uh, very much in every sense of the word um who's on a zero hours contract again and she's unable to uh, satisfactorily carry out her duties because the authorities will only pay her for a limited number of hours 
Uh, meanwhile, he's having a horrific time. He's working for this depot. Uh, he's sold this idea that he's a freelancer, that he's working for himself, that he's running a franchise. But really, that's just an opportunity for the company to load him with costs that he can't afford and let him, and fines and so on. Meanwhile, their teenage son is uh, is going off the rails and the family is breaking apart so all of this stuff i mean all, all the elements you'd expect from a ken loach film um uh, you know the sort of a, a crisis um people struggling um, within the state um but it's just so beautifully performed i mean all of the bit part players i mean i think chris hitchens has been on coronation street and um debbie honeywood has been a, a an extra and but they most of the actors are you know as you would expect Amateurs from a Ken Loach film. I mean, I, I mean, I always think that Ken Loach is pretty formulaic, but it's okay to be formulaic if it's a formula that you've designed yourself. I think, <laughs> um, and this one is as as one of those films that we all know Ken Loach is fantastic at. Really, very much um, ticks all of the boxes and very good example. Demo, thank you so much. Looking forward to seeing these back in UK cinemas over the next year, maybe more. Thanks, Jake. 
And now, after just under two weeks, the festival has come to the close. And so I've reached out to the associate editor of Little White Lies, Hannah Woodhead, to give us some insights into arguably the most important awards of the Cannes Film Festival 2019. Hannah, could you just tell us a little bit about the ceremony that happened yesterday? So the Palm Dog, which I think isn't that old. I think it's only been going a couple of years, but it's run by the kind of UK uh, British Pavilion at Cannes, and they award the best dog uh, in a film at Cannes with a little a little red collar that says Palm Dog on it. And has it been a good year for dogs at Cannes? Well, this is the thing. Um, about halfway through the festival, the Hollywood Reporter published this big article saying, "Has it been a bad year for dogs at Cannes?" Because there were just there were just not a lot of dogs. There were they they were there in the background, but there were none with sort of names and screen time, uh, especially uh, in the early films. And if people are following you on social media, they'll know that you've got a big snout on the ground for (laughs) seeking out a dog film yeah i've been keeping a a tally i I mean really i think that i should have been on the jury for the palm dog i think i've been laying the groundwork um but yeah i I was you know it was some pickings early on i think the second film i saw bull had a good dog had a a good american pit bull but it wasn't really you know they didn't they weren't doing enough with the dog in my opinion but then as uh, the week sort of came to a close we went into the weekend things were things were hotting up for the palm dog race mm. and uh, some contenders were emerging let's, let's talk through them <laughs> so the who are the big dogs that people <laughs> need to be watching out for in cinemas this year i'll start with some small big dogs okay um in parasite the film by bong joon ho there are three dogs um they are called i think zumi berry and fufu i might be wrong about that but um they are a pomeranian a beagle and a sort of some sort of poodle they're very cute they don't have a lot to do but they run around and look quite yeah. charming they do get some close-ups they do get some close-ups they yeah, they're good looking dogs mm-hmm. the i mean the biggest contender this year for the palm dog in my eyes always was going to be the winner was uh brandy the pitbull from once upon a time in hollywood who is the dog that belongs to brad pitt's character and has a a, a starving role i would say in the film she, wow. she plays a pivotal role to the plot and she does uh, does a lot of tricks with brad it's it's very charming and so you know all, all eyes were on brandy i think it was clear as soon as we saw the film it's like okay well it's not like last year when there were a couple of good contenders yeah. and eventually they gave it to dog man this year it's like, okay well we, we, the, the race is over we found the winner and julie uh, quentin tarantino was very excited about the, the prospect of winning the palm dog and uh, he turned up yesterday to to receive the award on uh, Brandy's behalf at the uh, the ceremony. Wow, the awards race for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood truly has begun. I mean, you know, anything else now is just bonus for Tarantino, isn't it? Like that's the one, the big one that all directors are after. And he's beat out a lot of competition this year. Really, Oscars, Palm Door, who cares? That that's the one everyone wants. That's it. Wow, and that that's the end of Cannes. <laughs> Uh, Hannah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. See you next year. Remember, jury of the palm dog, she's waiting. (laughs) Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.